Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. One 1Password one keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours, I can't even count them all, is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm revisiting a conversation that I had with Merlin Mann. Merlin, if you don't know, is a popular podcaster, uh, definitely an influence for me, as well as many other people that are involved in productivity. And in fact, that's what we talk about in this conversation. The meaning of the word productivity. We talk about revisiting getting things done and David Allen and the influence that he's had on the productivity space, which I've got to say especially in my most recent conversation with David Allen on the Getting Things Done workbook, which I still highly recommend, gave away a copy to a friend just a couple weeks ago. And I'll link up to that conversation in the show notes. Getting Things Done is still going strong. I don't know if you've maybe not paid attention to it lately, but there is definitely something to be said for checking it out again. And that's exactly what Merlin and I said back then, and I truly believe it now. And then we dive into the words Inbox Zero, which became something that essentially took on a life of its own. You've probably heard those words, Inbox Zero, probably because your mail app of choice somewhere in there says those words. Uh, They originally had a different meaning, and we get into what that original meaning was and what it's become. Not only that, but a side note here for me personally as a podcaster, I really enjoyed revisiting this conversation. I listened back through it. I trimmed it up, cleaned it up, polished it a little bit, which is not something somebody creative, you know, you don't always get to go back to your work and finish refinish it or polish it or quote fix it but and and sometimes you don't need to but other times it's well worth doing and and in this case I think that was definitely the outcome not only to be able to bring you this conversation again and and many of you you never have listened to that original conversation which is actually a bit longer than this one I have trimmed it down but just as a personal revisiting exercise to revisit that milestone of talking to Merlin the first time, which, by the way, next week's episode will be the second conversation I had with Merlin, where we expound on much more. So I'm looking forward to releasing that to you. As somebody who's been doing this show for almost eight years, one, I'm, again, still really appreciative to talk to Merlin that he gave of his time, the way he kind of talks about David Allen giving of his time. But not only that, I just feel the growth. 
I feel the maturity. I feel the, you know, in, in terms of being a student of productivity, a student of podcasting production, and by no means having arrived, but still continuing to learn and still loving those things and continuing to bring you new episodes each week. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Merlin Mann. This week is just an awesome episode. I already know, it, mostly because of the company. I'm talking with Merlin Mann. Welcome to the show, Merlin. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me. So the first time I ever saw you, you were standing next to Leo Laporte <laughs> talking about Quicksilver, the original Mac break days. I'll be honest with you, Eric. I was old even then. <laughs> <laughs> for people that don't know, Merlin ha- did a bunch of Mac break stuff with Leo way back when. I honestly don't know when you stopped doing that. There was kind of a little brief period after 43 folders before back to work that was kind of almost a black hole for you. Where I didn't see much happening. Hmm. That's 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 entirely possible. I and it probably I I started, intentional too. I think I started the show. Somebody else can remember this better than I, but I think it was around 2005. And then um, for a variety of reasons, and nominally that my kid was being born, right. I took some time off. I mean, that was that was definitely one of the reasons. But yeah. I need I needed a Mac break of my own. <laughs> nice. And um, and then I came back for a while, and I thought, eh. Once you've done, once you've done, you look nice today, and and had Adam Lissagor edit what that's you do. True. It's kind of hard to go back. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. I had forgotten there was that whole period there where it was like, oh, this is Merlin being Merlin, Merlin, not productivity Merlin. Well, and then so. I, I don't, want, I don't want to sound, you know, anything but grateful to Leo because he, he's that was the first. I think that was the first podcast that I was ever on. I think I may have done my own at that point, but apart from something with Odeo in like 1968, I was, uh, I, it was on, uh, Amber MacArthur's show w- with him right. one time, the two of them. You know, I'll always be really grateful because Leo, I mean, when I found out how popular that show actually was, it, it really blew my mind. Oh, so yeah. I'm always really grateful to, to Leo. Back around then, you were doing 43 folders. I'd love to talk about a little bit. I've heard some of the exploits you've talked about, you know, your back story or your superhero origin story <laughs> in terms of like, you know, how you started with being interested in the, the whole buzzword of productivity. And, and mm-hmm. part of me loves the word. Part of me hates the word. How do you feel about the word? I, I think I feel a similar way. I think it's one of those words that, first of all, I agree. In the way that it's uh, in the parlance of our time, it has it has come to mean so much and so little one does crave a better word. With that said, I've never personally cottoned to words like effective because in the way that that's used, it's one of those buzzwords. And like all buzzwords, they start out having a meaning and then and then moving into a kind of vertical market where they get used so often to mean so many things that, it, you know, what makes a buzzword a buzzword is it's been kind of drained of its meaning and becomes something close to what I think it was Orwell calls a thought-terminating cliché. It becomes this thing where we don't even kind of notice we're saying it anymore, but it kind of ends the conversation. And that's the problem with productivity, is because, candidly, it, it largely in part to people like me, using that word so much, like life hacks, it's come to... Sorry, my train's really loud. Going nice. Some people who have followed this stuff and gotten sick of it in particular, now think of productivity as this navel-gazing exercise in trying on tools and spending your day thinking about productivity itself. It's become a kind of unproductive, if you like, meditation on itself. As I think of it today, productivity means that you are having some degree of success 
in setting aside the things that you don't want to or don't need to be doing in the service of repeatedly making things that, uh, that you like or that you care about. And, you know, I, I think that that's for most of us, given any number of factors that I'm happy to talk about, I think that's an, that's a difficult ongoing exercise that requires a certain amount of constant refactoring given how quickly things change nowadays. We don't have a manual that wouldn't need to be updated every month or so on what we need to pay attention to and how we need to spend our time. And at, I guess for myself, the, the real value at the middle of that is saying, you know, regardless of what comes along, regardless of what's expected or demanded of me, I want to remain mindful of the things that I actually want to accomplish. And then I want to take very specific steps to ensure that I am keeping my eye on those things even as a lot of other things come on my radar screen. So hopefully that's enough of an umbrella that it covers things like distra- distraction, procrastination, um, all, all of the bugbears of productivity. Uh, you know, I don't have a better word, and that's probably part of the problem. The purely honest part is that as much as to my chagrin, people, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding um, ungrateful, but I, I have in the past, not through any doing of my own, been called a productivity guru, which makes me cringe a little bit because the honest part is I do think of myself as a student of these things. My pal John Syracuse one time said something along the lines of like, you know, would you want to take your productivity advice from somebody who's great at it or claims to be great at it? Or do you want to take it from somebody who's, you know, struggling with it and trying hard at it? Uh, something along those lines. And uh, that's how I feel about it is that I am, a, I am a student of it in the sense that I've sought it out. So, you know, so starting 43 folders. I started out with it because I had a lot to say, but I also feel like I had a lot to learn. I think all of us who do this start out as students. And then as soon as we start getting a little bit of traffic and attention, it's very natural to enjoy that recognition. Or I don't know what you call it, but, and then to kind of find yourself happily bearing the mantle of, of being a, a guru or a teacher. It's your authority in that that makes people want to go to your site. And it's it's one of the pitfalls of doing this kind of stuff that that you have to look out for. Yeah. So I started this podcast. I'm you know what thirty plus odd episodes into it, and I wanted to specifically ask people their thoughts on productivity, how it works out in their life. I wanted to see what they'd tried and failed to do, and then how they <laughs> then tried again and kept going. You know, and yes. so then you know, so I'm the student here when it comes to. Being the host, I, I am the student. I, I don't make any claims to be otherwise. And But what's funny is people come up and they'll say, you know, oh, how uh, how do you do this? How do you do that? And I was like, well, I've learned this. I've learned that. So, you know, my goal is hopefully never to stop being a student. So I totally agree. And I had this conversation with my daughter yesterday where um, she, we were taking down the giant size, like ridiculous, like five foot high Spider-Man uh, decal that she had over her bed. And don't get me wrong, she still likes Spidey. I'm not going to be defensive, but because she wanted to put up Perry the Platypus um, that we got from the new Phineas and Ferb magazine. And uh, as happens so often with a five year old, um, of course, I'm getting I'm getting my fingers a little too deeply in the pie and going, well, here, let me take it out. Let me carefully take it out. I'm going to remove the staples. I don't want to rip this because I'm a nerd. And then, you know, I was like trying to gently say, do you want some help with taping this up? You know, why don't. <laughs> I should just let her do it, yeah. but I'm standing there and going like, okay, why don't I hold this? You tell me if it's high high enough, and then I'll tape it, and she goes, no, I know how to do it. So that's, that's a teachable moment for both of us, because on the one hand, she's got to go and <clears throat> tape up her own crooked platypus sometimes, um, but I think it's 
also it's hard for a little kid because she thinks she knows how to swim and she thinks she knows how to ride a bike. But the truth is she would drop like a stone in both cases because she hasn't done it enough. And I said something, I did one of those dumb things. You say to a kid that you know is all about you and not about them, which is something I do a lot. But I said something along the lines of, well, you know, I try to learn new stuff every day. And I think that's a good thing because you're, you're a kid and uh, you still have a lot to learn. I'm an old guy and I still have a lot to learn. It's again, stupid, right? Why did I say this? But it's really hard to get better at stuff in life unless you're, you know, looking for ways that you can learn new stuff. And even if that's something dumb about tape, even if it's me showing you a slightly better way to use the scissors so that you don't kill yourself but can still open the Amazon package. But no, I think you're right. And my pal John Roderick and I talk about this on, on a thing we do. You know, when you, like we're both kind of music fans. Well, he's a music maker. But, you know, when you start just dismissing all new music, you're officially an old man at that point. You stop growing because now you're the same 45-year-old guy that in 1965 said, ah, the Beatles, you know, what about Nat King Cole or whatever? Yeah. Not, not that Nat King Cole's <laughs> not great. But anyway, I, that's the beautiful part about doing that is, and I think I, I, I know I said this in the very first episode of Back to Work is that I, how I admire people like the example I used was Kevin Kelly. People who have such a restless sense of curiosity that they, as old as they ever get, they still remain young and malleable because they are looking for ways that they could be wrong or could be better. And, you know, in the midst of all of this blathering about productivity and efficiency, I think that should be one of the values is it's not just about acquiring a raw tonnage of information that may or may not be useful. It's about keeping up enough with new ideas that you can find ways to evolve. I think that could benefit anybody. When you started 43 Folders, like where did you have the interest come from where you got interested in or heard about this thing called productivity that you would have wrestled with it and become a student of it to the point where you created 43 Folders? Well, it's a funny mix. There's, there's part of it that was practically hardwired in me and part of it that was very new to me. The hardwired part is that I've always, um, as a latchkey child living in Ohio, I, I was always very interested in you know reference books and learning things, and you know I was a reader, and so you know and alongside that my mom <laughs> was in real estate, so I was sitting. Some of the things I was reading were like sales books and things like motivational books, like Zig Ziglar books and stuff like that, which now seem pretty cheesy to me, but at the time, you know, like anybody. Whether I realized it or not, I was searching for a certain kind of, you know, meaning in things. And so I would really seek those things out. With that said, I've never been a giant fan of self-help in general. And in fact, you know, by the time I got to college and, and was a, a very cynical about everything, you know, I really felt like it was another way. <laughs> and I was, as I was self-radicalized in college, I, I started to become more skeptical about the way you could get people hooked on self-help and the way that it was a certain kind of uh, cultural hegemony to try and teach people to think of themselves as broken in a certain habitual way. Specifically with regard to 43 folders, that, that was at a time where, to be honest, I, I didn't have a lot of work. I, I was doing freelance stuff and I was in a period where I, was not, I didn't have that much going on. It was bumming my head. But when I had had stuff before, I felt like I was constantly struggling to apply the skills and expertise that I felt I had or should have, or better put, maybe should have access to. And I, I felt like I so frequently 
like anybody, I would have one of those uncommonly productive days where I would not only get everything I wanted to do done, but I would get things I'd been procrastinating about done. And then I would do something cool and I would do something nice for my, uh, for my then uh, girlfriend, <laughs> now wife. And I would, and I would catch myself at four in the afternoon going, wait a minute, what happened today? And then for every one of those days I had, I felt like I had nine or 12 days where I, four o'clock meant, what did I actually do today? What, I haven't done anything. And, and so 43 folders was, a, a, I think, a combination of these certain things, these really weird, afield things that had really gotten my attention and had become an obsession for me. As, as I said before, things like Getting Things Done by David Allen and Quicksilver and Life Hacks, uh, Danny O'Brien's Life Hacks talk, all in my head worked together, which at the time I, I think seemed very strange. That, you know, and, and, and also, this is, I'm sorry to prattle here, but the, the other thing that can't be overlooked that, we, that I feel like I must always remind people is there was a time when Apple was not what it is today. Yeah. There was a time when being a Mac user... Um, I don't want to overstate this. I'm not trying to talk about civil rights here. But there was a time when people thought you were super duper weird and fruity. <laughs> Apple. You were real fruity if you used a Mac because you were like deliberately trying to like buck the system in a really annoying way. And my point being, there was not that much stuff out there about using a Mac that was not mostly about the technology. So there was stuff, certainly. There was whatever, Mac Week, Mac World, um, Mac User, but they were mostly about, well, here's a new version of FileBuddy. It wasn't so much about, well, here's how to implement a getting-things-done-like system using the available tools. Because the available tools were like Entourage or you know Outlook Express and so forth. And so I guess all those things came together especially with having a little time on my hands that I started that site and I've started a lot of sites, especially back then. I mean, I would just start a site on a whim, but that one caught on and I had a lot to say about it. And then before, in a way that was very, very surprising to me, it really caught on by 2000, whatever that was, 2004 standards. It got very, very popular and has, I'm happy to say, and chagrined to say, been credited with kicking off the productivity blog genre. Others had existed before, but I don't think, I don't think they gained as much traction with as many different kinds of geeks and nerds as 43 Folders did. And then I kind of wrote on that for a long time. Not in a bad way, but I mean, that, was, that, was, that became my job, which could not have made me any happier. Well, I'm glad you did it. I mean, it, I am one of those geeks, those nerds that at the time then, it was... I wasn't about to go read. I hadn't yet read uh, Getting Things Done yet. And uh, it was one of those things that was kind of a shoehorn into really me doing better stuff with my time and actually getting a lot more done. And so, you know, thank you for that. But yeah, I kind of don't love the fact that, you know, people started there and then went on to do, you know, steroid type versions of it, but in weird, you know, <laughs> is that weird a mutant ways, is that a you know, statement. I have no idea. Is, is that it, about, is that about eating egg whites and, and it, sitting in a hammock? It could be. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it was one of those things where I think you came along at the right time as kind of a bridge between, you know, some of the, uh, executive, 
you know, suit and tie stuff that was still around. I mean, especially, I mean, David's book, Getting Things Done. I mean, you guys did the, for Back to Work, did the uh, series on that. Oh, right. Thanks couple, for remembering that. Yeah. You know, and it, well, what was funny was you guys put that out. Uh, you put out the first episode, the first episode of our GTD series, the same week I put out my interview with David Allen, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, that's ironic." He wasn't doing very much podcast stuff at that time. No, though. I no. think he was. He and well, I will say that his company, you know, him to an extent, but his company in particular were very skeptical about how much of David they wanted to expose to, you know, a lay audience. Yeah. So that's really cool. That's a get, man. It, it was really cool. I mean, I, ultimately, I was just thinking, okay, I eventually want to talk to him. W- let me lay, you know, the groundwork or the the first ask out of many, I assume, we'll be having. And literally the next day, his wife emailed me back and said, he'd love to do it. Here, do you, is this day and time work for you? And obviously, I was about to move everything out of the way to do it. So, yes. <laughs> Catherine, she's quite a character. We talk about the benefits of expertise. He's he's lived inside of that stuff for so long. And if you really listen to what he says, he's been a basket case for so long that I mean he's great at it now and he is the the guru's guru. But I've I you know, we went to the same college, something like twenty five years apart, a very small college. And uh which I only learned, you know, a long time after starting with his stuff. But you know, it's a place where it's like the island of misfit toys, you know. And you know, he was this real crazy rebel who who uh my, my my best friend in high school's dad knew him when he went to new college and he just he was famous for being this outsider character who rode around on a motorcycle and then he really did like lots of odd jobs and had a terrible time fitting in he wrote his entire getting things done book and then like threw it out because he didn't like it so you know it's easy to look at david allen and see see yet another guy who talks about efficiency but he's a freak yeah. you know in the old school awesome sense of the word and i think he's brought a lot of that to his work and is sympathetic to people who have a laundry list of excuses for why they can't be productive. And he's sometimes his answers aren't always 100% satisfying, but he's got an answer for everything. And if you really think about it, a lot of his answers are really spot on. So I, boy, I, I owe that guy so much. And he's been so gracious with me. And uh, doing that interview was just giant for me. I mean, that was, that was a real honor. Yeah. Well, and to prep for that, I honestly did go back to your interview with him to just kind of take some notes and think, how do I crack this nut again? You know, I mean, so many people, he's, he's done so much. So many other people have interviewed him. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's so many years later. How do you revisit GTD from the guy who wrote it? Right. But get something – how do I ask him something no one's ever asked him? You know? It's like interviewing so, Santa about Christmas. Right. Like you kind of feel like a dork. But two things I like about those interviews, and I think there were something like – we obviously we recorded them all at a pass but released it as I think six episodes. It mm-hmm. ended up being about 90 minutes. But um, two things I really like about that are, first of all, that at least to my knowledge, and I was a bit of a David Allen scholar for quite a while, he said a lot of stuff I'd never heard him say before. And, uh, you know, with much deference and respect, I tried to push him a little bit on some things I felt that he had not addressed as completely as I would like as an acolyte. But I thought he answered him really well. <clears throat> and he ended up saying, you know, of course, a bunch of stuff I'd heard, but some things I'd never heard. But, I, you know, the second part, I really like that you get some of his playful personality in that. And, you know, what a what a dork <laughs> he is in some ways. <laughs> you know, yeah. he makes he makes jokes that aren't all that funny. And he he's like us. He's he's just a dude, but he's gotten better at being that dude by by walking a path that we've all had to walk. So he knows whereof he speaks, 
And even as much as in as much as he might work for you know people like Target and Goldman Sachs, you know he can still be a, a great model to us because he's really thought this through. And if you need a comprehensive, if you if you're a mess, you could do a lot worse than starting with getting things done. Hundred oh, yeah. percent. Oh yeah. And and just just in passing, the the other thing I feel like I always need to say is that if if you're into getting things done or you have been into getting things done, it does benefit you very much to read the book more than once. You know, I'm I'm always like the wire guy. Like, oh, you gotta go watch the wire, best TV show ever. Watch it five times. But in this case, like every time I read that book, I feel like, especially the first three times I read it, I got something different every time. And it wasn't until the probably the third reading, and it wasn't until like I'd had that interview with him that he was kind enough to do that I really understood what those altitudes meant. I I was so interested in the tips and tricks to do list stuff that I was missing. He in in like maybe two sentences, he really shined a light for me by saying, well, if there's anything you'd like to be doing that's beyond your task and project level, if any part of that is on your mind, even if it's something 20 years from now, if any part of that is on your mind, it's no different than a phone call that you haven't returned or an email you haven't responded to. And when he said that, I really it was an aha moment for me because I think a lot of people want to skip that section of the book that's about all that up in the clouds junk of like, you know, what's my destiny stuff. But, you know, if there's some part of you like me, I hate thinking about my daughter having to go to college. I think probably the college university system, with all respect, (laughs) will be in in tatters in 13 years. But, uh, but anyway, that's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going on. It's, it's, it's early here and I've had some coffee, so I apologize. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And most people know the term inbox zero, that you coined it, like you wrote the words inbox zero together and you know now, <laughs> now and now it became yours no that uh people you, you see people tweeting out you know hashtag inbox zero on twitter like they're <laughs> mel gibson and braveheart you know freedom <laughs> although if they were to implement it the right way it would feel like freedom instead of you know anyway email but whatever i gotta ask what did it start off as what was inbox zero originally intended as and then maybe how has it morphed and how do you look at it now that's a very good question. Um, there's something I don't like about myself, which is that um, sometimes I end up writing about something or doing a podcast about something or whatever. I end up saying something about something because I've gotten emotional about it. In, in a really weird and paradoxical way, I think Inbox Zero was probably one of the earlier things that was about productivity, but also about not getting wound up in productivity. Because as somebody who had vended that stuff um, several times a day for a couple years before that, I, I started to get frustrated with, with how much people were trying to solve the email problem, in quotes, uh, through these methods that I thought were strangely Byzantine given how little usefulness they had. And so Inbox Zero uh, was a series I did. And I mean, gosh, it was all told. It was less than 10,000 words, probably something. I mean, it wasn't a lot. But it was basically the the the, the, the core of Inbox Zero, um, which it's not hard to see, is is very influenced, heavily influenced by David Allen, is that, you know, if I had to say it in one sentence, the original version, if you have time to check your email, you must find time to do something about that email. That it doesn't make sense. You know, we're all really good at checking, but few of us, at least for myself, I'll say, it's a very different thing to be good at doing something with email uh, rather than just simply checking for new email. And then in fact, you know, habitually over and over checking for email without doing something about that email is, is abusing not simply the medium, but also your own attention and time. So then to go out one concentric circle. And so there was this kind of ridiculously basic system that seems so obvious now, which is that it's the classic productivity trope of touch at once. So if you have time to check email, um, and, and that sounds silly because as David says, you know, you're always going to be checking for bombs and stuff in there. But if you are going to check your email, why don't you sit down like a gentleman and actually do something with it? And let's let's update our idea of what we do when we do email. Because even at that time, I think it was still conventional wisdom that you respond to most of your email. And at that time, spam was becoming a, a spam was, I don't want to say becoming, it was already, spam was a huge problem in 2000, whatever that was, five. And also, you know, it was certainly apparent definitely by then that people were using email for very different things. And what I, I guess one thing I would say in retrospect is, you know, you don't have control over what's in your inbox. So if you let that inbox determine your actions, that's something you really might want to think about. And if you are somebody who who needs to check email frequently, then, you know, then that's your job now. That's 
you get to do less other stuff if that's your job. So if, you, if that is your job, then why don't you treat it like you're a professional? And so every time you look, you look at that email and you make a one-time decision about it, right? Is this something I need to respond to? In which case, I could send a quick response. Is this something I need to do something about? Which means I either put it on my calendar or put it on a task list. Is it something I need to do research about uh, and so forth? Or is it something I can just delete or, or archive? And, you know, I think one of the things in Inbox Zero that I hope was useful to people is that there is a staggering amount of stuff in most of our email that we can choose to either, uh, that we can choose to, to let go of. If you've ever come back from a vacation, I think I said this at the time, I don't recall, but if you come back from a vacation and you see those 1,000 emails or whatever in there, there's a strange freeing feeling of seeing how many things resolve themselves in a fairly short amount of time, how many things you really have time to do anything about. Right. If you if you come back from vacation and you see like a week of stuff or two weeks of stuff, are you going to sit there and treat that with the same amount of time as you would have spent fiddling with your BlackBerry anytime during that two weeks? Well, no. You're going to go in and find probably the, the the stuff from you know. I used to do this all the time in like Entourage. I used to love the way you could sort in Entourage, mm-hmm. and you could you know group things by by topic or you know group things by the sender. And so I would always go through in a case like that and look for stuff from the important people who I knew I needed to deal with. I would always start there. I would really always, and I still do this today, start with the most recent emails and work backward because there's a very good chance that the most recent stuff is the stuff you still need to do something about. You know, And obviously the conventional wisdom, again, would be start with the oldest one and move forward. But I think it's much more encouraging to say, wow, if I get five of these emails done that are most recent, I'm going to feel much more energized to go through the rest of these. And when you get that velocity going and saying, okay, archive it, make it a task, archive, make it a task. Well, if you really go through those thousand or even like like 50 emails and you end up, if you go through 50 emails and come up with 40 tasks, I think that gives you a weird amount of perspective to go, whoa, am I really going to do these 40 things? Well, okay then do those 40 things or defer them into a place you'll do them later. But then also mindfully accept that every one of those things that you do is 10,000 other things you can't do. And this is the real, you know, postdoc level of productivity is realizing that your time and attention are so limited. So yeah, in 2005, 100%, it was about me saying, look, guys, this is not complicated. (laughs) It's only complicated because you're dealing with other people. You can't control those people and you can't control what they think they deserve from you. And so you have to have what I would then call, I don't know if they still teach this, defensive driving. Don't worry about what anybody else is going to do. Don't assume that anybody's going to do the right thing. Just make sure that you protect yourself and do everything you can to not harm others. And that's, that's, that's where it started. So, you know, I, I don't want to sound smug and go, oh, it's really about time and attention. It is, but, but it was a very tactical approach to email. And doing that talk at Google, again, that was another watershed for me because, you know, so many people have watched some part of the Inbox Zero talk. And that was what ended up having a huge influence. You know, when I went to Google and people were talking about getting hundreds and hundreds of emails a, a day, they invented the app called Gmail because people at Google get lots of mail. It's why I still use Gmail's web interface to this day. If you learn the key commands for Gmail, I, I defy you to show me a faster way to get through your inbox and back to your work. But that's where it started. Yeah. I, and again, I think it's very much, in my head, it's very much evolved. The two points in the times, kind of interregnum since then. On the one hand, wow, thank you world. I'm glad everybody loves Inbox Zero, their version of it. It's taken off as a phrase. 
I now have three email apps on my phone that use the phrase Inbox Zero uh-huh. in what I would consider sort of a weird way. But it did take on a life of its own. Somebody I, I think is probably a friend of mine created a Twitter account, I think just to provoke me in a funny way. And every Friday afternoon, it, it only does exactly one thing which is every Friday afternoon at about, I think, about 4 o'clock Pacific, it says, Inbox Zero, all caps, exclamation point. And just, just to provoke, because people, people know how much, my friends know how much that, that drives me bananas and is actually antithetical to that idea. So on the one hand, it forked off in this direction that had, you know, and I, I, I wish I could say I care more today, but I really don't. I, you know, I, okay, whatever. If that works for you, that's great. But for myself... As I, for example, and I don't want to get too far into the book stuff because it's a rabbit hole, but trying to write this book about Inbox Zero made me just ugh, not even want to think about right. it anymore. Yeah. I was, and, and that combined with all of this deliberate misapprehension of what I was talking about, I thought it made me go kind of dead to it. But yeah, and I've definitely rethought that in the context of where my head is today as somebody who's a little older and who has more stuff that I really have to do, you know, like have to have to do has made me rethink that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it started out absolutely as email and it started out as something that I could post to my blog that I, that I thought would um, be posts that people would like. Well, obviously they did get likes. <laughs> I mean, it got the traffic. One of the things that I've always kind of saw it as is, you know, like how David Allen talks a lot about in his book because he didn't have, you know, email in the format that even you were talking about then in 05 or even now. And he's talking about a physical inbox often in the actual getting things done book. And Mm -hmm. I just kept thinking, well, okay, so metaphorical or whatever you want to call it, the inbox, in other words, the place where people who have expectations of me or myself included put something when there's something that has to be done. So I didn't always ever, you know, end up just looking at it as just the email inbox, but any kind of channel that, you know, you'd open up and people could, tell you stuff or send you stuff, et cetera. Like, I mean, I've even heard you, you did the thing where, you know, you wouldn't stand at the, um, <laughs> you wouldn't stand at the post office box, well, yeah, pull everything out, funny. fiddle through line. it and throw it back in. Nobody, nobody, which is nobody funny. stands by their mailbox at home waiting to see what's in there. They go there once a day and then deal with it. Yeah. You bring that, it in that's, the house. That's reductive, through, but it's throw it, definitely the same pattern. Yeah. But do you, I mean, so has it morphed at all in your head where it's not just about email specifically or even vaguely, I guess. I mean, I know it's about time and attention when it comes to email, or at least it originally was, especially with working with email specifically. But I mean, has it changed at all? You're asking a terrific question. And uh, yes, so two, two, two things here. Number one, you talk about the physical inbox with David Allen. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the thing, one thing that was so different in whatever, 2000 when he was writing it, I guess, or 2001 when it came out, was that there really was not things like ubiquitous Wi-Fi. There, there, you know, there, was not, there were not as many people. I mean, certainly, I'm not going to say it's, I mean, we're not talking about like the 1930s here. It was people were using email a lot for lots of things. It was a problem for people. It was the problem for people. Whereas today, I think probably meetings feel a lot more like a problem than email for a lot of people in, in big companies. But, <clears throat> but that's one thing that was different. And one thing I kept craving an update of in the book was how to deal with the electronic life. But I'll, I'll just honestly, and I would still say this today to anybody uh, getting ready to dive into the very big process of doing getting things done. That physical inbox idea is huge. I mean, and what he says in the book specifically is get like a giant physical inbox. And and again to quote him, you know, if you don't have an inbox 
your whole life turns into an inbox. Your 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 boat and your car and your your garage or whatever turns into an inbox. So so what he rec- I think I hope I'm saying this correctly. I think what he recommends is starting over with pretty much everything that's on your mind and turning it into something in that inbox. Like your your calendar, like if you're keeping a like a day timer as he mentions, throw that in your inbox cuz you probably need to start over with that. If you are thinking about your boat, right boat on a, on a card or a piece of paper and throw it in there because you know it's that collection that initial collection is so critical because part of the reason you're resistant to doing all those different things that aren't at your desk is because they're not at your desk and because they feel like something where you have to go somewhere and do something and so if you if you write boat that's a terrible example but if you write boat stick with that and you throw it in your inbox and then process it you're gonna ask yourself what what is the significance of boat well boat is like i need to sell this or i need to get the barnacles taken off or i need to find a new place a new berth for it or something or it could be something as simple as i just i just want to get new curtains for it well once you take boat and boil it down to go to walmart to buy boat curtains i don't know if they have a nautical curtain department but that's you are you're playing on a different level at that point so the first of all, the physical inbox thing I think is huge. Um, something I'm probably stealing for him from him, but I'll, I don't, I'm not sure. I can never. I don't even know what I originally said anymore. But uh, to me, an inbox, and this is something I, I think I, I came up with when working on the Godforsaken book, which is the only way I can refer to it, was that uh, the aha moment for me was when because uh, I was struggling with the idea that you know, this was going to be a book about email. And I was, to be honest, fi- trying to find these bigger patterns because I thought it was about more than email, but I also needed it to be about more than email. I wanted the book to have longevity. And I, th- I think I always get this wrong, but what I said was that to me, an inbox is uh, anything that might contain something that you might be interested in or might need to know about. So, and, and that is, that's, those mites are very, that's a lot of mites. It's, and they're all significant because if you knew what was in your inbox, it wouldn't be an inbox anymore. It would just be unprocessed stuff. The thing that makes an inbox so harrying for most of us is that we don't know if anything is in there. And then once we know what's in there, we, um, haven't made a decision about what to do with it. And then once we have made a decision about what to do with it, it may be something we haven't done yet. And so the second part of that then is, yes, first of all, it might be something you might need to know about, but also that every inbox by, maybe, I don't want to say by definition, but for most of us, email inboxes, in any kind of inbox represents things that are unknown, undefined, and incomplete. You know what I mean? And so just checking your email turns the unknown into the incomplete. Looking at something, or excuse me, it turns the unknown into the undefined. And then the undefined, <laughs> I always forget the second <laughs> one. Uh, unknown, unprocessed, however you want to think of it. It's going to drive me crazy because it'll come back to me. But, you know, just checking email means now, like if you just go and look at the subject line and maybe browse this, well, you haven't made a decision about what you're going to do with it. So it sits there red. Okay, so now, yeah, you know something's in there. You know what's in there. But then if you haven't, decided what to do about it, that's going to weigh on you. If you've decided what to do about it, but use your, uh, as I like to say, use your inbox as a to-do list, well, now you're mixing three very different kinds of things together in one place. So to me, step one, step zero in nerd language, is to say, well, okay, if this thing's an inbox, whatever that is, whether that's email or whether that's my PO box or whether that's my relationship with my family, I first have agreed that that's an inbox that I'm going to take care of. Right. So that sounds silly, but there's so many things that we're worried about checking on, but we haven't fully accepted. And it, even if we have fully accepted it, we have not committed ourselves to spending time to do it well, which again means you can't do other things well. 
So, you know, first of all, except if that is an inbox you want to take seriously, then you have to treat it seriously and you have to do things to take care of it. I don't know. I guess I guess I feel like that that ends up being one of the most problematic parts. This the second problematic part is that we don't take our inboxes seriously, but the first and much larger problematic part is we either are unaware of our inboxes or we've we've taken them lightly. And then we end up adopting so many things, or put differently, we allow so many things into our life that we have an uncertain relationship with. If you allow too many things like that into your life at different places, it should not be surprising to you that you're not being productive or effective because you are, as they say, spreading yourself too thin. You know, that ability to say no or maybe is a very difficult thing for us to do, but it's the only thing that can ensure that we do the things that we claim matter to us. Did that even vaguely answer your question? Yes, it did. Yes, very much so. In a lot of ways, you're talking about pick and choose specifically where you're going to allow, you know, your inputs and and you're choosing the good things over the everything. Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah, Boy, there's always two parts for me, isn't there? Um, yes, that that is, I, I guess, good things, um, not to, you know, disassemble what you're saying. It's a thing that I've decided needs to be done by me. And that could be a good thing. But there's a lot of stuff I don't want to do that I have to do. Mm-hmm. But, and I always end up getting into this really f- well, but cheesy you decide, thing about... You decide that because based on the, you know, for example, there may be stuff like, you know, take out the garbage or this or that or whatever that are things you don't necessarily want to do, but you do them because it's the, the you know, quote unquote caretaking of the home. And that's where your chosen... Or it chose you, or whatever you want to put it. Family life <laughs> is JC. <laughs> there you go. It's a life that chose me. It's ninety nine problems, and it, <laughs> but an inbox it, right? <laughs> There's the title. Um, Speech. You, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. but you see what I'm saying? Like you do the things you don't want to do based on, especially when they're tied to the things that are the things you you have to do, and especially hopefully want to do over everything else. Yeah, I, I mean, like, when I say it's two things, I think these are very interlocking. So, yeah, I mean, if there's if this is stuff that needs to be done, but but I mean, I'm, I, hopefully, I'm, I'm phrasing that somewhat carefully. Like, it's things that need to be done by me, and I accept that. That's really different from hmm, <laughs> right? So, if I yeah. accept this input, first of all, like, I do need to do something about it. But I've set my phone now to forward to Google Voice because I I guess my numbers in the wild. And I get these incredibly bizarre calls from nobody and blocked and all of this stuff. And it's, you know, every time like an idiot, I take the bait and pick it up. It's something stupid. And so now I have everything go to Google Voice because that's no longer an inbox that I can accept in that format. Boy, that's, that sounds really like, like I'm a, trying to be a big shot, but that's, that's honest. That's me being honest. Like if it's something my, if it's from my wife, she's probably going to text me. If it's something, you know, important, somebody will leave a message. If I don't have control over who has access to that phone number anymore right. and I don't want to go just change it, well, the closest hack I have right now is, is to just say that's no longer an inbox I will deal with in that form. I care a lot about what's in there, but you're going to have to also jump through the hoops of leaving a message and then I will call you back because that shows you take it seriously too. But here, here's, the, here's the second part, and this is giant, is that – and this is why they say they're interlocking – is that, yes, you've accepted this as an inbox that you need to do something about or if you, in your parlance want to do something about, a good thing. But you must always accept that everything you agree to do is other things you can't do. 
boy, that was, I, I will never stop saying that because I don't think people accept that. There are, yep. there are people in this world, you, the phrase that you used a little while back or the word that you used was things you, you choose to do. Well, I don't think people are really choosing to do things because choosing has the implication not only of selecting something, choosing also has the implication of not choosing other things. And I think that is a distinction that has a difference. Look at it this way. If you choose to go to dinner at this restaurant tonight, you're also choosing to not go to dinner at every other restaurant in the world. And that is so obvious that it's depressing to me that more people don't understand that. And, and, and as, I've, as I've said before, this is why you can't have 27 priorities. It's like saying you have 27 arms. Everything that you take on is other stuff you can't do. That means, so if, you're, if you've got 50 things on your list to do today, well, good luck. If you can do those 50, more power to you. But most people can't. And it's because they're not accepting they can't do 50 things well today. And they continue to live in this fantasy world of thinking that just because they wrote down a noun on a piece of paper, it's something that they're going to do. Well, no, that just means you've taken the time to capture something you don't really care about. So that has become so significant for me and so difficult for me because I want everybody to like me. I want to please people. I want them to think that I'm cool and smart. I want them to think in an ideal world to think that I'm responsive. But again, you know, first principles. I don't control who emails me. I don't control who calls me. And there's a reason that our house has a door. People are not allowed to drift in whenever it suits them and, and then talk about selling me some shoes. Like you, you have to knock. I have to acknowledge. And if I don't feel like answering the door, well, deal. Because <laughs> I've got I've to give my daughter a bath. And I challenge you to tell me what's more important about you wandering into my house than me getting my daughter to not be dirty. So I don't know. I, I don't mean to get all keyed up about that, but it's just, it's one of those things where I am an evangelist for this idea of what I can really melodramatically call care and sacrifice, which I don't want to get into that. It's, it's too up in the trees, but all I will say is that there's a practical point to all of this. You would never agree to go to 300 Christmas parties on the same night. Mm-hmm. So why would you agree to do 300 one hour tasks in the same day? You have to reject the ones that are not the most important to you to go straight back to David Allen, if you persistently make and then break deals with yourself, if you put things on the calendar to force yourself to do things and then make them red and bold and three exclamation points, well, if you're not actually doing that stuff, you're breaking a deal with yourself and you are in, as I like to say, putting compost into your crisper. You're buying a bunch of produce and then throwing garbage on top of it. There's no way you're going to want to cook anything in your refrigerator because you are allowing moldy food to accumulate. Boy, that was long. You yeah. Get rid of this is no, 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 no. Uh, I've heard it referred to, you know, in the business world, whatever that means, as opportunity cost. And I think that's a really good – as much as, you know, those words are, are somewhat foreign to some people, like I think it describes it pretty well because every choice is an opportunity. Like you choose – I mean it's a fork in the road or or multiple forks for that matter where you pick between all these different things. But you only get to pick one. For that time and space and that, you know, whatever context. Yeah, I mean, we all have, we understand, I think I said this during the Inbox Zero talk, but we all understand that our wallet, we should understand that our wallet is for holding money, not making money. So when we spend the money that's in our wallet, it doesn't replenish itself. And yet, it seems like a lot of us, when we become frustrated, it's because we haven't accepted that we've, we've acted like we have more time and attention uh, than we do. So I, I like that phrase opportunity cost a lot. And I want to stipulate I am not an economist or smart person. I don't even know if that's an economic term. I think it is. Opportunity cost, I think, so. I think one, you know, one example of that, for example, might be, 
I think opportunity costs can be looked at very much in terms of something scarce like money, right? So if I spend $3.99 plus tax on this comic book, that's now $3.99 plus tax that I don't have to spend on other stuff. So, you know, and like I said, when you're in college and you have to decide between like food and laundry, you really get that. But then there's another phrase that has, that has cost in it that I like, which was it's sunk cost, sunk cost fallacy, which you can Google, uh, listener. Um, and sunk cost fallacy, as, as I've heard it uh, phrased, is that once you've poured a lot of, in this case, money, like resources into something, it's easy to develop a certain kind of blindness to whether you should keep spending money on that. Like if you, let's say you've got a crappy car like we have, <clears throat> and you put in a new engine and a new transmission, and then um, a year later, you have to put in a new timing belt. And a year later, you got to get a new windshield. What you're thinking about is the money you spent in the past rather than whether it's still a good investment for the future. And not to be political, but I've heard people say that that was the problem with various wars we've had in the Middle East, is that once we start deciding whether to stay somewhere based on what we have lost and sacrificed there, we're not really honoring the lives of those yeah. people. We're just going to lose more lives chasing our, our money, if you like. So, yeah, cost, and those, those cost terms are sticky for us because they get to something that gets lost in productivity, which is that there's a finite amount of time and attention. We understand there's a finite amount of money, but we don't always understand there's a finite amount of attention. And in the same way that you, you know, probably want to buy milk before you play blackjack, why wouldn't you have that same conceit to say that, Paying attention to this and spending my time on this is more valuable than all these 10,000 other things. If I haven't figured out what one thing trumps those things, I, I despise that word priority, but if I haven't made a decision about what has to always trump everything else, then I don't have clarity about what I care about. And I will never really get good at anything because I've allowed the entire world to decide what's valuable to me. And, and that's not a life. Here's the part where I have to say this is really turning out to sound much like a, a back to work episode, which it's your show. feels really good to me because, you know, when I <laughs> and uh, with back to work, when I first found out about it, co right, hosted by my friend Dan Benjamin. Yes, yes. Which I'm, I'm just, you know, I found it through one of your tweets on episode one because you'd already, you'd started a relationship with him and, you know, which he wouldn't, he wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> he used to, he used to pretend to like what I did. Whereas today he's obviously doesn't, and and, uh, and he would just browbeat. Ah, Merlin, why why don't you do? We should do a show. And I'm like, I can't. I have to not write a book for 18 hours a day. <laughs> but yeah. I, I I went and I did a talk, and I would someday like to tell this. Once there's been a little more time, I want to tell this story because it's an important story. But basically, I'd gone out of state to do a talk, and this is back when I was, I guess, making most of my dough from doing you know talks and presentations which is a harder life than it sounds like. It was a very time-consuming enterprise that was very profitable for a while and then just became less profitable and very time-consuming and really defeating. Because, you know, and I've joked about this on Roderick on the Line, ha-ha, just kidding, not really, which is I, I really don't know how much I can help people with a talk. What I have to say to people when I do a talk is not useful to most businesses. Because first of all, I'm not a typical <laughs> presenter. Maybe yeah. I'm not as prepared. Maybe I'm just too weird. Maybe I, I use too many curse words. Maybe I talk about poop too much. But when I tell you that you can't have 27 priorities, that's not the message that people want. What they want is, here's another, give me another tool to fight my Sisyphean task. And what I'm trying to say is, 
maybe you need to stop pushing a rock and find a different line of work. Okay, thank you for your time. Yeah. Net 90. And, and, but I was at this place and it was a really like a hardcore, forgive my saying, super fan who had hired me. And I just thought that the culture of where that guy was working was so heartbreaking to me because this guy was trying so hard to do the right thing. But he and his team were not only n- not doing it that well, but they were, comp- in my opinion, super duper nice guy. But their entire team was laboring under this myth, this misapprehension that they were doing things the right way and that the improvement opportunities were all these sort of tactical little tweaks that they could do. And what I was trying to say is, especially to their VP, who I ended up having a screaming match with at two in the morning outside an elevator, they'll never forget. I was like, you're, you're not being honest. You're not being honest with the people you work with. You think they understand what the rules are. You think that, you know, what I would say today is like, he's like almost like this David Brent character where you, you think that you've, created a certain kind of atmosphere but what you've created is something very very different here and i don't feel great coming in here and taking your notes on how i should change what i have to say to make you look like the lone ranger or something because you're not you're just another guy who's trying to micromanage everybody and be loved which is really different from saying i care so much about what you guys do and i trust you so much that i'm gonna i'm gonna get out of your way and instead it was it was and I don't know, I'm going on, but it was so depressing. And I came home within one day of coming home. I don't know why. Emailed Dan and I said, we're starting a new show. That's it. And then we had one phone call about the rules of the game. And then the next day we recorded. Wow. And then we've recorded almost every week since. That's, that is really, really how it happens. I've got the emails. Like I'll tell you, it's how it happened. I, can, I, I mentioned it just a little bit on that first episode, but that coming home from that place and looking at my notes from that talk and trying to think about what to do next, I felt terrible because this super duper nice guy that has a picture of me in his office, I let him down and I yelled at his boss and I was very unprofessional and I was mad. And I was also at that point really struggling with that book. And I, I don't know, something happened and I snapped and I just, I needed a reboot. I guess I was starting to realize then what I absolutely know now, which is that doing these talks is great. If I can get a big fee to go out and talk, speak somewhere, that's fine. You know, I'll push a broom if you can pay, pay me my fee. But it's not helping people for me to go out and be some kind of a weird character they've never heard of who has no credibility in the company, only to meet up with the resistance of, hey, if you guys do anything that I think is valuable, you're going to get fired by David Brent. And then also just feeling this weight of like, I was still very much trying to write this book, but I was like, there's so much cool stuff I don't get to do. Not, not in a whiny way, but there's so much, I used to do so much cool stuff that I really liked and felt good about. And now all of my attention has been poured into this alternating series of talks and book stuff, you know, spending up to 18 hours a day on the book, then feeling bad that I've got to go do a talk somewhere to actually make some dough. And then feeling bad that I'm not writing the book while I'm doing the talk. And I was like, this is asinine. This is not what this should be about. This should be about making a decision that lets you be the person that you want to be. And, you know, the meta layer on top of all that was I'm supposed to be the productivity guy. I'm supposed, I'm sitting there counseling people on, on all of this stuff, but I'm not eating my own dog food. But I mean, anytime that I find myself feeling uncomfortable about not living up to stuff that I, that I talk about, you know, well, on the one hand, like I never will. Nobody, nobody can. Yeah. Well, you're still you always going to be a student, like you said before. 
but I'm also always going to be a mess. It's just yeah. that like, oh, can I be a, a, can I be a mess that I can love? Right. I love the fact that honestly you're doing back to work and then have branched off. I mean, well, I mean, obviously you were doing, you look nice today before back to work, but that you've moved into being like a podcaster, like right. a legit, like consistent, you do this, a it's your job. podcaster. <laughs> That's like jumbo shrimp and military yes, intelligence. <laughs> or professional podcaster. And, uh, <laughs> and don't tell Dan I said that. And, uh, Ultimately, I just love the fact that you're proving that it can be done because it gives hope to those that have loved podcasting ever since it first was added to iTunes in 05. And as you've been a student of your own show or through your show with Dan, like what have been some of the standout like where your thinking has changed or you've rethought something, I guess? If it's not obvious from a lot of this prattling, it can take me a pretty long time to figure things out. There's a lot of stuff I can pick up fairly quickly. But then there's a lot of stuff where who knows why? Maybe maybe I need to be wrong at something for a long time before I decide to be less wrong about it. Or maybe I need emotional distance from it before I'm okay to even talk about it. I boy, I, I certainly think that's true of me. And I suspect of other people. As far as what's changed with that, well, I don't know. I mean this is a little meta, like so much of what I say, but with with that show, I mean one thing that's been great for me is I don't have that many long-term relationships, especially like business relationships with people. And so, I don't know, I feel like it's always a chance for me to get better at having that relationship. In the same way that I, I would, you know, I can always be better in my relationship with my wife, God knows. But like with Dan, like I love our on-air rapport personally. I, I think people, that's why a lot of people listen. That's why people tune in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe, I mean, that's, I think that's why people listen more than twice um, otherwise it would be unbearable. That's been a great relationship for me. I, I, I hope it always stays cool and healthy. And, um, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, there, there will probably come a day when the show's not something we maybe mutually don't want to do anymore, but like, I really like doing it. And one completely a field thing that, that maybe I, I just want to say, because I'm thinking about it, I I'm hard on myself sometimes because I know I repeat myself, but you know, then I think about people who are doing like junkets to um, promote a movie and they have to say the same thing over and over because it ends up being extremely self-involved to assume that everybody has heard what you have to say what if instead you said like what's the best thing i can say today as though someone's never heard it and on that show i sometimes i not very much but just a little bit i worry that there's like a certain amount of retreading. There's only so many things that can be, I was watching, um, been watching eight and a half, uh, a little bit every night, the Fellini movie with the, you know, commentary on, I forget who said it, but somebody said there's really only like three stories that can be told. There's only really only so many things that we can say on that show. It's just that they need to be said and need to be heard and need to be reheard. I believe I need to re-say them so that I can rehear them. When I say, you know, ad nauseum that taking on more things than you can do is is a road to frustration or that being creative is about doing things repeatedly, you know, without regard to whether you get a merit badge for it and so forth. All of those things that like we talk about over and over, I need to say those because I need to hear them. But I also, I'm coming, becoming more comfortable with the fact that not everybody's going to listen to every episode of that show. It would be self-involved for me to assume that people do. And then I have gotten, I'm getting, not gotten, I'm getting more okay with the fact that as much as some stuff may strike me as a retread sometimes, um, there's always a new spin on it. Um, there's always new stuff to talk about with that. And there's always a reason to keep going back to the meetings. You know, if, if, if you're in AA 
I've had a bunch of friends in AA, and uh, it, there's times where you need to go back to the meeting. And I would love to think that anytime somebody needs to come back to the meeting, uh, they could pick up a copy of Getting Things Done and read through the first third of it just to kind of reboot. I would like to think that they could go to the gym and at least stretch a little bit, if even if they don't run a marathon. And I would like to think that, like the Buddhist who comes to pick up the boat only when he or she needs to cross the river, I would like to think that even if you're not a weekly listener, there will be something there that you can come back and listen to. And so sometimes my friends will say, hey, I've kind of fallen out with the show, or I've, you know, not fallen out, but I've, I've kind of hadn't listened for a while, and now I don't know what you're talking about. And I'll be able to recommend an episode. I'll be able to say, like, go listen to the five Getting Things Done episodes, mm, or yeah. go listen to this particular one. I, I, as long as I'm completely full of myself, I think this week's episode is one of our best episodes, and, I, and I'm seeing people say that this is one of the episodes that would be great to start with, 118. So that's one thing that I've learned is that, you know, if you teach a class, for example, like, would you feel like if you were trying to teach something, if I could <laughs> be hoity-toity here, if you're trying to teach something about history or economics or mathematics, like if you're teaching a mathematics class, you shouldn't feel strange about having to explain multiplication more than once. In my case, that's much more abstract and much more discursive, but it'll never stop being important to me to share something that I want to get better at. And, and, and what works and doesn't work for me in doing that and why I think yelling at you about this thing, it may make you mad, but it may make you think and it may make you realize that you're a student too. And I, I like that. That's great. But I appreciate you having me here. That's no really problem. Cool. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Honestly, it's been, I mean, you did most of the talking, but I expected that. Did to I? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> that's Thank that's you. the Thank point. You. Thank you, Eric. I, I, I'm really People wouldn't ask you to come on their show if they didn't know that. There you well, go. Well, you know, okay, here's the thing. If you go to a, a, a buffet that's mostly fried food, don't complain that they don't have steamed okra. Here's the thing, Eric. Let me explain. No, that's the thing. Yeah, if you have me on, I'm going to okay. talk a lot. And it's always – I said this to Mark, and Mark and I were uh, – we wanted to talk for a while. We hadn't caught up on the phone in a few weeks. And <laughs> we, we were going back and forth on tw- Twitter on you know DMs about when we could talk. And I was like, well, you know, I got to pick up my, uh, my gun tour. Got to get my kid today at like one. We could talk, have a quick call if you want. And he's like, we're not going to have a quick call. I was <laughs> like, you know what? There's never anything that I've done for less than 90 minutes. So that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed revisiting this conversation with Merlin as much as I did, especially if you never listened to the first one in the first place back in the day during my first year of this show. It's been seven years since this conversation, which is just amazing to me how well it held up, how far this show has come, and honestly, gathering steam in certain areas of where this show is going to be going. There's a lot more coming. There's some really great episodes on the horizon for this show. I'm really stoked about it. I I hope that you as a listener uh, are ready. By the way, if you have topics or people that you're interested in hearing from either again or for the first time, and you have a good reason to have them on, not just they're a CEO of my company, blah, blah, blah. I'd love for you to hit me up on Twitter. Just go to twitter.com slash Eric with a K, the letter J, F-I-S-H-E-R. Hit me up there. Let me know, one, if you enjoyed this episode. Two, if you have any feedback, comments, questions, etc. Don't leave them as an iTunes review. Somebody did that the other day where they were like, I have constructive criticism. And I'm like, I have questions for that person. I can't reply to them. 
So through a, through an iTunes review and their username is, is of no use to me. So hit me up on Twitter. It's, it's E-R-I-K-J-F-I-S-H-E-R on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this conversation, I'd love for you to share it out to the world or specifically to someone you know needs to hear it. Hit the share button in your podcast player app of choice where you're hearing this or head on over to the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 313. Thanks again for sharing. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.